0: You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Brother Kenneth last week and how he had just set up a, a bunk bed set for his kids. And while it's awesome to be able to change the decor and room setup for your family, if anyone's ever been to Ikea, you know it's never, ever a simple setup, right? Those dreaded words that you've read on that box, every time you buy something, it says, some assembly required. And there's like a million jigsaw puzzles there, pieces, to put together. It's ridiculous. I remember even getting a gas grill on the 4th of July, thinking, how hard could it be to set it up? just a couple hours before I had to grill the steaks. Fortunately, I did do it earlier, but it was difficult. I took it out of the box, and sure, there was like the big piece, but then there was a lot of different small pieces. I pretty much had to forge the steel and weld it together, and then from the ground up, assemble the whole thing. I had some help, and we got the steaks running, but uh, it was good. Now, these days, when Christians talk about the Christian life, it's usually done in very kind of general and overly romanticized terms, especially with Valentine's Day just around the corner. How many of you guys are excited for V-Day, Valentine's Day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not sad. Yeah, it's for everyone here, right? You ladies will probably receive some romantic poem or candy or flowers or some sort of romantic gesture from a husband, boyfriend, uh, Secret admirer or stalker or whomever, right? (laughs) Now, what happens when that relationship, that romantic relationship that you have with one another kind of fizzles out? When that passion becomes tolerance? When that love becomes a like? What happens when you realize that your knight in shining armor isn't so chivalrous? Or that damsel in distress is no more damsel, but all distress. <laughs> that's what we do. We overly romanticize everything, haven't we? How many, have, how many of you guys want to buy a house one day? Yes. I'm assuming most of you guys, if not all. But how about this? Talk to a homeowner who had to shovel several tons of snow this past blizzard. Not so romantic when your back spazzes out. And sadly, that's what we do with our Christian lives, too. We say things like, hey, trust in Jesus, and your problems will be all over, and life will be wonderful, and the songs of your, life, of your love will forever be sung, and so on and so forth. But if you look closely at the box called Christianity, you'll find that it contains a manual, a Bible, and on the bottom it'll say, notice, some assembly required. But because the reality is that the Christian life is not a walk in the park, and someone stopped those Reprobate children running around. Joseph, thank you. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a continual spiritual high. Do you know how the Bible describes a life lived in Christ? No, it's not what Joel Osteen says. No, it's not what Joyce Meyer says. It's not what Criflo Dollar, his name is amazing, says. It's nothing where it's just always up, it's always smelling roses, it's always lovely. The Bible speaks of our lives as Christians as work to be done, it says. As training to be endured. As a marathon to be run. You know, my brother Kenneth, he uh, put on Facebook, I'm going to do the marathon. Anyone want to join me? Right right, read right that, I actually laughed out loud. I literally laughed, LOL. Right? I mean, it's difficult. The Bible also says... The Christian life is even a war to be fought. Who in their right mind would want this thing called Christianity? Who in their right mind would want to follow this commander in general named Jesus? Like, I'm not saying it's not worth it. most certainly is. But it's not one where you can simply pull out of the box and merely just play and have at it. It will require time and attention, and struggles are inevitable. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's do the Christian life. And so this afternoon, our text tells us about one such struggle that we all need to learn. And I've broken it down to two, (laughs) two truths. The first point is that only Jesus can remove walls that divide us. Turn to your neighbor and look at them in the eye and say, is there something that separates us? Every person here, almost in every way similar to one another, And yet there are barriers and walls that separate mankind, that separate humans. If you walk through any inner city, in any major city, be it D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, New York, I mean, sometimes you might feel like you're on a different planet. People of different races, different cultures surround us. I remember during our honeymoon, Grace and I were walking around in New York City, Chinatown. We walked through that Chinatown, and it seriously... There's only Asian people selling Asian Chinese food. You can only hear or Chinese, or that's ignorant for me to just say Chinese. You get what I'm saying. Everything seemed a bit unfamiliar. In fact, I remember many years ago when I was in high school, uh, my younger brother was in middle school. He just entered middle school. And I was told to go get, uh, to take him to get a haircut. Unfortunately, that day was a holiday in so many places, so all of these places were closed, Haircuttery. Great clips, supercuts, right? All the places that we frequent. But there was one barbershop that was open. It was right on Annandale and Lee Highway near Dunkin' Donuts. Back then, it was called Po' Boy Barber. Now, it was called like Rich Man Barber or something like that. They moved on up. Now, the thing about Poor Boy Barber was that it was predominantly a black customer-based barbershop. But since my mom said, David, he better come home with a haircut, I had no choice. So there we were, two wide-eyed Asian boys entering this barbershop. And there were probably a dozen guys there, and none of them were getting a haircut. They're all just talking, just laughing and having fun. That was until we showed up. And the barber asked, what you want? And I said, my brother... This one needs a haircut. And so the barber points him to, the, to the, uh, the nearest chair. My brother sits down, and he gets, and I still think to this day, the best haircut he's ever received, it was a straight-up boys-to-men fade with that little line on the side, and they cut it all the way in front to the point that he looked like Drake. It was hilarious, but it was awesome. It was as they called as the barber finished up You look fresh. But it was interesting too because this store, and presumably these guys, all live around me, and yet when we entered, there was still a difference in the way that we spoke and the way that we dressed and the way that we do things. It was a bit different. Racism and discrimination is obviously still all around us, and there will always be people who continue to spread and divide and mitigate the alienation between difference of people, the media does a wonderful job in creating division. The media has always been one to create constant separation and animosity between all people of all races and all walks of life. Now, here's the thing. When I see you guys here, the ministry, the body of Christ here, I see before me a ministry that seeks to know more of Jesus. Is that true? Can I hear an amen? Amen. We're not striving to become a multi-ethnic church. Nor are we striving to become a Korean American church. We have one aspiration, we have one vision, and that's to become a gospel culture church. A church that loves Jesus, period. And that's where we have to start because it's through Jesus' death on the cross that God reconciles people to himself, bringing them into his gracious covenant. And I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine a few years ago before, just before I started the English ministry. And he asked, David, will multi-ethnicity be one of your goals, especially in such a transient area like Northern Virginia, DMV area? And I said, no. Because I believe people from all color, all backgrounds will want to worship Jesus as long as he is our focal point in ministry and in life. Then, as long as Jesus is in the center, all people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues will be drawn because that's what Revelations 5, 9 says. So here's my challenge to you all before we go on, okay? Now, while I don't think any of you are tend to discriminate or are led by any racial prejudice, I certainly hope not, not in terms of evangelism. I simply wonder how you evangelize, how you evangelize and who you gravitate towards. When you evangelize to Asians, do you share the gospel and do you invite them over to our church? but when it comes to non-Asians, do you evangelize and then simply wish them the best without offering them an opportunity to enter into a gospel-centered community? Do you get what I'm saying here? we got to put down our biases, and how you answer this should really force you to rethink your belief in the body of Christ and how you act out those beliefs. Can I hear an amen? amen. Now back to the passage. Remember, Paul visited the Jerusalem Apostles To make clear that there was only one gospel and one church. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's one gospel and one church. Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem... We're proclaiming the gospel to the Jews but the Jewish believers still continued to practice the ceremonies of the law but despite all that all the apostles stood up and they all agreed that God had given apostle Paul a wonderful ministry a wonderful calling to for him to go and preach to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised they said Paul you are in fact an apostle just like us you ha- you have just like us received the lord's calling and so therefore we endorse what you're doing we endorse your ministry We anoint you, we bless you, we send you, and we verify that the gospel that you preach is in fact awesome, correct, true, that Jesus is the only way. Now here's a little background to what happened around Galatia, according to Acts chapter 11, because some of the believers were facing some persecution in Jerusalem. And so they took the gospel and they ran out. They escaped to the city of Antioch, which is in Syria, And it was there that they proclaimed the name of Jesus to all the Gentiles there, the Greeks there. And as a result, many people in Antioch, they became believers in Christ. In fact, that's where the name Christians came to be. Even though at first it was a derogatory label, either way it stuck. So that's where Christians came to be, that name. Now the Christians there were not Jewish. They didn't live like Jews, meaning all those rites and those rituals and those uh, ceremony th- ceremonial things, clean food, it meant absolutely nothing to them. Because remember this, the death and resurrection of Jesus did two things. First, Jesus abolished the commandments and regulations of law which institutionally divided the Jews and the Gentiles and he did so by satisfying and fulfilling the law of God but also as being the one who's condemned by God, suffered the wrath, but secondly, he reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God in such a way that now they can be at peace with one another too. He's saying, look, I'm bringing all my babies together, so you guys should not be fighting. So Jesus had broken down the walls that separate these groups of people so they could live in fellowship with one another the way that God intended. And so by God's grace, the church in Antioch, filled with Jews who became Christians, who are loving Jesus, the church prospered. They prospered. Now news of this had reached the apostles in Jerusalem, so they sent a guy named Barnabas to check it out, and when he got there, man, he was happy to see God's grace at work. He was so encouraged that he stayed there to encourage and to help lead and to teach, and he encouraged the church to grow and to share the word, and so Barnabas, he was doing awesome stuff with the people of Antioch, but he also went to Tarsus, and there he recruited Paul, who by that time actually was a no-namer. So he said, hey, Paul, or Saul, why don't you come over here? Or Actually, his name was Paul. Why don't you come over here and help me? And so Paul and Barnabas, they taught at the church of Antioch, and the church that was filled with Jews, it grew, it grew. They they loved each other. They served each other. They worked together. They they sacrificed for one another. They were blessed by God because there was no racial divide. There was no socioeconomic divide. They were just a bunch of people who needed Jesus. Now, sometime later, After Paul had visited Jerusalem to speak with the apostles, Peter was drawn to Antioch. He said, oh man, there's a lot of good stuff going on here. I want to visit. So now we come to Peter's story. Remember, it's all settled that the Gentiles did not need to follow the Jewish customs. It's all settled that they don't have to observe the Jewish customs. But here's the question. What were the Jews to do when they encounter a Gentile believer? Now, traditionally, the Jews would never associate with Gentiles. They would never go to the same school, never go to the same district, never go to the same restaurant, never go to the same market. Don't, they would not do anything. Jews ate kosher food prepared in kosher kitchens. Gentiles ate non-kosher food prepared in non-kosher kitchens. And according to the regulations of the Jewish law, Gentiles were considered unclean, dirty, filthy, and the Jewish people were considered clean, and they were, conti- they were called to be separate from one another. But God had different plans. In fact, God had prepared Peter just for this encounter. So he put Peter into a trance or a dream. Remember in Acts chapter 10, there was a sheet full of unclean animals that was being lowered from heaven. And God told Peter, kill and eat. Why? Because the Lord said, I made him clean. Now the immediate point of that dream was that Peter was to go to the Gentile named Cornelius where God demonstrated that through Jesus, Cornelius coming to faith in Christ was that God saying, I am accepting Gentile believers. And so like we heard last time, Paul had come to Peter, James, and John about God, accepting Gentiles because of Jesus. And then all the apostles, they agreed that Gentile Christians did not need to adopt the Jewish traditions. So when Peter met these wonderful Gentile Christians in Antioch, when he came by to see what all the hoopla was about, he had absolutely no trouble accepting because he had that dream that God gave him, right? He says, yes, yes. No, no, no. At first, I had a bias against you. I discriminated against you. I hated you. I harbored sin against you and all fear and whatever you want to call it. But God has, he has redeemed my mind, my spirit, so that you are my brother in Christ. And so he was able to sit down with these Gentile Christians and he was able to fellowship with them and love them. And he ate with them as brothers in Christ. But, but then something happened. Something happened that turned this whole thing upside down. You see, a group of Jewish believers claiming to represent the Apostle James decides to arrive in Antioch, and this group was the one that was stuck in their old traditional Jewish ways. They only ate clean food. They never associated with unclean people. They were like Pharisees, complete sticklers of the law, and they said, I would never dream of sitting down with such a disgusting, filthy Gentile. Never. Never regardless if they are a believer in Christ or not. Now this is the sinful power and influence of this kind of group thinking, of this mob mentality that we sometimes encounter, because this group's influence was so severe, was so strong, that even the great apostle Peter was caught up in the separatist perspective. Shocking. Think about it for a second. The great Peter, that Jesus says, you are my rock. He was influenced. This Peter who once used to dine and love and laugh and worship with these Gentiles with no problem whatsoever, he was now unwilling to even go near or sit down and have dinner with these Gentile Christians. And so we have Apostle Paul. Seeing this entire scene play out, he publicly confronts Peter about this blatant and brazen hypocrisy, and he calls him out, and that's what this text is all about. And that leads us to our second and final point. If you're going to embrace the gospel, then you must walk in line with the gospel. Now, there's an interesting word used here in verse 14. The word is "in step." This Greek word is orthopodeo. Say it to your neighbor. Have fun with that. It's a compound word. And before you guys start nodding off the thing, who's going to win the championship? Probably Panthers. Hear me out. Ortho means straight. That's why we go to the orthodontist. Ah, Donto means teeth. Ortho means straight. Straight teeth. Get it? But the other part of orthopodeo is podeo, which means feet, hence podiatrist. See, Greek is fun, right? So this word means something like making your feet go straight. I like what Tim Keller says concerning this text. He says that Peter and those visitors were not walking in line. They were not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. That was the charge, and this is the principle. To walk refers to the course of your whole life. It includes your thoughts and your feelings and your motivations and your behavior. A person's walk is the whole direction of your life, meaning this. If you espouse to a certain belief, but you're not living it out, then you are denying what you believe and are, in fact, living out another system of belief. Does that make sense? How you live is a reflection of who you are and what you believe. A person who says, I am diligent, but can't wake up in the morning, is constantly late for work or for school, procrastinates with every responsibility, is not diligent no matter how hard they say they are. This is what Tim is saying, and this is what Apostle Paul is accusing Peter of. He's saying that the gospel, Peter, has a trajectory, and the gospel has a line that has to be followed. Now, the gospel is more than just a one-time cure. It's also a clear set of truths and prescriptions, and the main truth is that because of sin, we are all weak, and we're always trying in vain to fix our lives. How many of you guys are trying to fix your lives constantly? Change this, exactly. But because of sin, we're weak and we're always trying to fix our lives to make us more acceptable. But through Jesus, the entire law of God has been fulfilled, amen? So when you believe in Him, you are completely accepted, amen? Others may not accept you, they may not accept your work. They may not accept your, complete, your accomplishments, your income, your looks, your education, your personality, your quirks, your wounds, your current struggles. But in Christ, you are completely accepted by the Father. How freeing is that? And that's the gospel. But the gospel also has implications because the gospel tells us these truths, but the gospel also sends out a gospel line for us to walk through. And that's what Peter failed to do in Antioch. You see, what Paul is accusing Peter of is the fact that God has never once accepted him and entered into a relationship and fellowship with him based on Peter's performance or based on Peter's accomplishments or based on Peter's credentials. God forgave Peter just like God forgave the Gentiles and Jews because of what Jesus did. And now all of a sudden, Peter, in his confusion, has the audacity to separate the Gentiles, to separate the Jews, Jewish Christians on some sort of requirement that has already been fulfilled and abolished. Paul is saying, hey Peter, you may believe in the right things, but your behavior is denying the gospel. You're being a total hypocrite. Brothers and sisters, in what way are you denying the gospel today? Christians who act racist or display any sort of prejudice, they aren't just bigots, they're brazenly denying the gospel by their actions. To not forgive someone because of the pain they've caused you is to deny the gospel. To hold on to bitterness and resentment is to deny the gospel. To not forgive someone when they apologize and they want reconciliation is to deny the gospel. Denying the gospel isn't when some terrorist puts a gun to your head and commands you to renounce your faith. No, because the sad truth is there rarely ever needs to be a gun to our heads for us to deny our faith because we do it all the time in the way that we live and the way that we don't walk the gospel line. Our Heavenly Father has graciously welcomed you and me in Christ, but we must never forget that all who profess to be a Christ follower were saved by grace. Therefore, the Lord says the gospel line commands you to extend that same grace to one another. Now here's the principle behind the entire text. We who believe the gospel cannot continue to sin. We who believe in the gospel cannot continue in sin. It's not because we'll somehow use up Christ's work on the cross. No, his work is infinite. His sacrifice is ultimate. His forgiveness is eternal. But the reason why we, you and I, cannot continue to sin is because every time you and I sin, we fail to line up with the gospel and walk in step with God's grace and truth. So before we start patting ourselves on the back for not being racist or bigoted towards other people, other cultures, the gospel forbids us to pursue all our fleshly lusts. The lust of the eyes. You know what that means? It means the desire to possess anything and everything that is attractive to you. Lust doesn't just mean a sexual thing. You can walk and say, I lust after that pair of shoes. I lust after that type of job. I lust after that big house. I lust after that kind of person. I lust after this kind of uh, scenario or situation or that person's circumstance. It also means the lust of our flesh, meaning our desire for status, our desire for power, our desire for authority, our desire for even revenge. And this also includes, lastly, the lust of pride, which means somehow, somehow we think that we're better than others and that God owes us for the good things we've done or for the bad things we haven't done. To walk the gospel line means to give up all those things. When you follow your sinful human nature every day, then you are not lining up with the gospel line. So how can we line up with the gospel? Surrender, surrender, surrender. Every moment, every day. Give it up, give it up, give it up. Every single day. Relinquish And praise the authority of God. Worship the magnificence of God's sovereignty, that He is in complete control of your life. And that He knows your course, He knows where He's doing in your life. Let Him lead you. We had to give up our man centered desires so that we could pursue God's desires every day. And how do you know what God desires? It's through His Word. The more you read the Word of God, the more you'll see how the Word of God applies in every arena of your life, every aspect. It's interesting. Whenever I counsel students, whether they're young students, youth group, or even adults here, the ones who seem to know what's going on in their lives and are able to respond well in a way that's faithful are the ones who simply find great trust and confidence in God. And they're the ones who have a consistent daily walk with him. It's not brain surgery. It's not some special guru that's telling. No, it's, it's quite simple. If you do not know, and if you are, stru- you are struck with confusion and, and, and difficulty understanding the circumstances of your life, try prying open your Bible. It is as simple as that. But spend time. Spend time in the word of God. You see, in the Christian life, it's not as romantic as we'd like it to be. It's not this one day of pure conversion. Yes, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Savior and Lord lead me now. And all of a sudden you think the rest of your Christian life till the day that you breathe your last will be all wonderful with rose-tinted glasses thinking that every single day will be so worshipful. It is not as romantic as you think. Because, like the good word says, there is some assembly required. But that assembly is a natural process that we call sanctification. Meaning, when you open the Bible, and when you pray, and when you seek the word of the Lord, and when you commune with one another, and when you worship God as one body, this is what happens. You and I we start to assemble in our spirits. We start to assemble in our faith and it grows and increases and we start to learn to live out our new status in Christ as born-again followers. And by doing that, we start to reject our former lives as children of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is not new news, but it starts from here. It has always started here and it will always start from here. I want to encourage you guys this brand new year. Yes, it's February already, but the year's still young. Commit to a daily walk with the Lord. And instead of you spewing out what's on your heart, try checking in and what's in the heart of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Obviously, through Peter's, I guess, dilemma, if you want to call it that, he was someone who had lost sight of the word of God and instead had simply began getting swayed by the words of man. And if such a great apostle like Peter was so easily swayed. What fighting chance do we have? But that's not the issue here. The issue is we do have a fighting chance. In fact, we have even more fighting chance because we have the word of God with us. In this day and age, people discredit the Bible and say this is irrelevant. It's It's not applicable to my life. It's outdated, it's archaic, whatever word you want to throw out there. But one thing they fail to understand is all the other things that they are substituting as their truth changes with the generation, changes with time. There is nothing constant about any of the truth outside of Scripture. It is only the Word of God that lasts forever. It is only the Word of God that can bring the changes in our lives and guide us when we need guidance, to direct us when we need directions, and to clear up the haziness and the cloudiness and the, and the brokenness of our lives. You see, it starts with the Word of God. I want to give you guys just a few seconds here to meditate on what you just heard. And then I want to go into our time of communion. So let's just pray. How have you been denying the gospel? And the reason why we deny the gospel, much like the way that Peter did, was simply because he did not align himself with the word. He had forgotten the amazing message of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. Are you discriminating against someone? Are you harboring sin, unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, whatever it is, against someone? Have you hurt someone, and you need to ask for forgiveness, but your pride is keeping you from doing that? May the Lord compel you, convict you, and may you seek forgiveness from the Lord before anything else. Let's go before God right now, and let's take a few seconds to pray. And as we continue to bow our heads in prayer, understand what this communion, this Lord's Supper signifies. It's here that we're reminded of God's grace by which Jesus saved us. It's here that we're humbled, stripped of any notion of our work is good enough, any notion of self-righteousness. And here we're given this amazing holy food and this drink of Christ to remember who gives us life, who gives us freedom, who's given us salvation, who's given us himself. And I want you to know that every time you take the Lord's Supper here, that when you take it as a child of God, as a daughter and a son of the Most High, know that you are taking it as one who is welcomed, as one who is loved, as one who is made beautiful, as one who has been considered worth something so valuable that the God of the entire universe will give His one and only Son, And all that was not because you're worth it or because you're lovable or because of any of our efforts, but simply because of God's grace. I love you because I just do. I love you because I just am. So take a moment to pray, and when you're ready, if you profess your faith in Lord Jesus Christ and you part, you're willing to partake this as a member of this body, then you can come up and please join me and sit back down and we'll conclude our service. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> Father, we pray to you this afternoon. And here we have this Lord's Supper here as a church, as a body, to express our deep and great thankfulness to you, our Father, for your amazing love and desire to send your Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. And Father, we know, although we can come before you with great joy, that we need to also come before you with a degree of great sorrow that it was because of our sins and our rebellion that led to this great sacrifice. But Lord, we pray acknowledging the fact that in partaking of this, we are declaring our fellowship with you, Lord, that you know us, that you are with us. And so I simply pray now our heart's, our hearts attitude and The where we stand before you, God, will be an expression of a manner that's worthy of the great sacrifice that you have made for us. Continue to work in us, Lord. May the gospel be ever so clear and centered and upon and central in our lives. May we not just be professing believers in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but Lord, I pray that you would also help us to walk in that gospel line. and to to not deny our faith, to not deny you, Jesus. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for our new friends as well. For those who do not know you, Lord, for those who have not entered into a saving relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit begin to tug at their hearts, that you begin to cultivate their hearts and their spirits ready for that one day when you do call them. We thank you. Lead us now, I pray. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Please join me.